0: Galatians chapter 3, and I'm just reading five verses, but there's a lot in these five verses, tremendous content. Galatians is a very tightly packed letter. It's very different than others if you would compare, for example, Galatians and Philippians. Philippians is a friendly letter, a letter that's very relational, very encouraging, Galatians of course uh, Paul has a case to argue he's he's upset and uh, at these people and he's trying to straighten them out and he's giving them a pretty well-layered lesson in doctrine as he argues his way through Galatians and you know this theme of grace and law is here you might feel like it's Paul's just repeating himself but what he's really doing is kind of like movements of a symphony I think he is Repeating a theme, yes, but he's developing it a little differently in each of the different paragraphs that he undertakes. So you'll hear some things that you've already heard, but here we are in the middle of Galatians 3, and the title above the passage, which of course is not inspired, but it's accurate, is The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. Listen, Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be every one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them now it is evident that no one is justified before god by the law for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith rather the one who does them shall live by them christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's look to God. Father, speak to us. Long ago, Paul was making a case here, people who were tending to believe wrong things. May we see crystal clear the gospel shining through this old misunderstanding. Might it clear away any misconceptions that we have and anchor us firm and sure that we put our trust in the right place, Jesus alone. Help us in Jesus' name amen. As I prepared for this message this past week, I was honestly every day marveling at God's providential superintendence of the schedule of the messages as this series was undertaken. I promise you that, first of all, I didn't put it together. I believe John Light and Tucker and Chris, who do the primary preaching for this evening series, worked on you know, who, when it would start, what the passage breakdown would be, who would preach what night, and so on. And this one came to me for Reformation Sunday evening. But I just thought, marvelous. Thank you, Lord, that you planned the righteous shall live by faith to be at the center of the subject that we deal with on Reformation Sunday without our manipulating it that way at all. It's so appropriate to see here the echoes of Luther's rediscovery of the Christian gospel of salvation. He didn't invent it. Don't ever think that. All Luther did was rediscover something which was laying there all the time and ignored amazingly. I mean, we're astounded when we think how long the gospel was ignored. I've heard it compared to the situation of a a wooden ship, and I guess uh, years ago when the hulls of most ships were wood. They, they had to be cleaned all the time. They had to be put in a dry dock, and barnacles would accumulate. And if you just let them accumulate forever, you'd ruin your ship. Or they would get on the rudder, and you couldn't turn the rudder or anything. You wouldn't even know what the shape of the ship really looked like if you didn't clean off those barnacles. Well, the Church of Christ in the time of Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and Wycliffe and Tyndale and so many others was an unrecognizable ship of the gospel. And all that Luther did was sound a trumpet call and say, What you are seeing day to day as you worship God here in Europe is not the gospel. It is not the biblical gospel. And to some people this was so radical they just couldn't understand. How could it be so different? But it was. And so we're looking, really, at a text. Well, Romans was very much in Luther's view. I understand that. Romans 1 through 3 especially, where the righteousness uh, that comes by faith is also in focus. Galatians also was a premier text that he studied and was part of his turnaround. And so it's appropriate tonight that we look at this. Well, you've heard of the old rugged cross, popular hymn. You've sung it. You probably can think of many of its phrases. But if you saw in the bulletin this morning that the title I had proposed for this message was making a deliberate play on words to call this the old cursed cross, you might have thought that I was being either irreverent, rude, or perhaps even blasphemous to call the cross a cursed object. We are taught to speak of the cross, of Christ, of course, with reverence and respect. We're even told to glory. One place Paul said, if I glory in anything else beside the cross, far be it from me to do that. Why would I be crude and call it the cursed cross? Unless that's exactly what the text of Galatians 3 refers to the cross as and the one upon it. I think if we're not careful, we can tend to consider the cross in almost romanticized and sentimental terms with sort of a hazy halo around it. And we think, oh, what a wonderful thing the cross is. And, of course, we have hymns that, that lead us in that direction. We should cling to the cross and dwell at the foot of the cross. And, and those aren't wrong thoughts. But they maybe are not the only way we should think about the cross, because we certainly should not forget, first of all, that it was a horrifying way for a man to first be tortured and then executed. But then, even more so, and to the point of what we're considering tonight, the cross was the place where the wrath of God was poured out, where divine justice was meted out, and where a penalty befell Jesus, the divine Son, as he hung there, first alive and and in torturous pain, both physical and spiritual, and then when he died and hung there lifeless. The cross was a moment in time and space history on this planet when God's curse of abandonment and exclusion from his favor was visited upon the one person who had been most in his favor, from timeless eons before this world even existed. That is simply amazing. Now, let me just set a paragraph or so of quick review here to put this passage into its context in relation to Galatians. I know you've all been here every Sunday night and taking notes, so you're completely up to date on Galatians, but I'll just be redundant and give you a really quick review. Galatians we know is probably Paul's earliest letter. First Thessalonians might be the only rival with that, but we think it's pretty sure that Galatians was earliest, around 48 or 49 A.D. is written mostly to Gentile Christians scattered across a a whole area of what we call Asia Minor. And these are people primarily new in their faith, just developing in, in churches that Paul had founded. Now, Paul had the misfortune, you may remember, Uh, many times he would go and establish something and people would follow right behind him and move into town as he left to go to another place and come and say, hey, folks, you remember that guy Paul who was just here? Let me tell you what was wrong with everything he told you. And these fellows didn't have a formal party name, but they developed the name. They were Hebrew in nature, and they were people who had some degree, to some extent, of a belief in Christ for the most part, some of them not necessarily. But all of them were united in the idea of loyalty to the law of Moses. So they were coming in and saying, hey, Paul, he's really pretty much a traitor to our Israelite faith. Do you understand everything he has given up? And now if you really want to follow this Messiah, Yeshua, Do so, but bear in mind all the things of the law of God that you should be practicing, because if you don't do those also, you're not true disciples of Yeshua. And so this big debate came about the law versus grace, and that's really what Galatians is about. And these people were boasting, well, let us tell you what it's like or what it means to be a son or daughter of Abraham. And they came stressing that Abraham, of course, contributed the covenant and the idea of circumcision to show that the heads of the household belong to the faith of Abraham. And that's really where Pastor York was last Sunday, talking about those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham, not those that are of the law. And Paul's argument that just basically bulldozed away what they were teaching was, look, Abraham pleased God because of his faith. Do you realize that he was said to have his faith commended even before he was ever circumcised? Abraham, long before he bore that mark in his body and was looked at as the, you know, the father of the Israelites, he was a man out of the Ur of Chaldees. He wasn't originally Hebrew. He founded the Hebrew nation, you could say, And the first thing noted about him was he believed God, and that was counted for righteousness. That happened before he was circumcised. So Paul's argument is, how can you base everything on something that happened after what he was being praised for? His faith, not his law obedience. Well, that's the background of this law-grace argument, and now it, it goes to another step here with a little different emphasis in the verses I read for you tonight. And the first point I want to put before you is to show you that Paul's argument here is that the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament witness to the curse of God's law. This isn't something Paul has just pulled out of the air. We know what he's alluding to here when he talks about this, and it's a relatively obscure passage. You might want to look at it. In Deuteronomy, chapter 27. Deuteronomy is the second law. In many ways, it repeats things that are in the book of Exodus about the wilderness journey. It reiterates many of the lessons, and for that reason, we often don't turn to it as much as we do to Exodus, perhaps. But in Deuteronomy 27, there's a curious scene, something that actually happened in the history of Israel, and it was as they were leaving crossing the Jordan and finally coming into the promised land. And Moses' uh, emphasis at that time was, look, you're going into the land now. You've already possessed the law of God. You've already heard the commandments. You need to have the law of God stressed to you so that you will keep covenant with God as you enter this dangerous land where there are all kinds of idols and things to distract you and so on. Deuteronomy 27, I'm not going to stop and read it, but you can look it over. And it comes down to verse 11 there when it tells how Moses took the 12 tribes of Israel and he split them in two groups, six tribes in each group. Now, there apparently were these two mountains there. They couldn't have been, you know, rocky mountains or something like that. They don't have those kind of mountains in that area. But they were definitely large hills. And one was Mount Gerizim, and the other was Mount Ebal. Six tribes of the Israelites were sent onto the lower slope of Mount Gerizim, six tribes onto Mount Ebal. And apparently, in between, in the valley were those apparently priests who read out the law for a reaffirmation. Now, this is a symbolic act that they were doing because each of these mountains represented something. Mount Gerizim represented the blessing for obeying the law. Mount Ebal represented the curse for disobeying. And so the, the you must have had, I don't know whether they had megaphones or how they read it loudly enough that people heard or maybe they were just, you know, priests with each group reading it where people could hear. But they read the law in the presence of the people, and particularly they emphasized the curse, the negative consequence that would come if the law was not obeyed. And as you see the story there, the people heard this, and they affirmed it. They affirmed the covenant and shouted, amen, to say that they fully understood that there were penalties if they would not keep God's… You know, see, Israelites, like us, were always eager to affirm, oh, yes, God, we're your people. We'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. Just take us into this land flowing with milk and honey. We'll do it at any cost. Well, we well know that when the going got rough, they didn't remember that vow. But they affirmed there that they understood even the negative consequences of the law. So there was the emphasis on the curse of the law even back in Deuteronomy. Now, the Old Testament repeatedly, and I'm not going to go into all the scriptures that would prove this, but I hope you take my word for it, that many times the standard, the perfection of God's law is exalted for how great it is, how pure it is. Just take the 119th Psalm, of course, longest chapter in the Bible is all about the perfection of God's law and how, then, this is the expression of God's mind and heart. It's a perfect expression. It's for our good. And so every part of it, every bit of it, matters down to the least detail. So here, Paul is saying in Galatians 3, look, if law obedience is the way you want to go, you'd better know what you're signing up for. You're signing up for a detailed, complete, no holds barred doing of the law of God. All of it. No loopholes, no lapses, no days off, no makeup exams, no half hearted commitments. All of God's law has to be done. And that's why he can say here all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Why does he say that? Because he knows human nature. And he knows the minute we think that we're going to completely and perfectly and in every detail do that, we will realize we cannot do it. Keeping God's law at 72% is not good enough. I always marveled. Uh, I wasn't quite as driven for grades as a certain lady who shares my household in high school who thought that anything below a 98 was failure. Uh, I wasn't quite that manic as my wife was, and she could get those grades too. But I was pretty happy most of the time if I could get anything over 90 or 95 was certainly really good. But what if I was looking at that as my standard to keep the law? Then I needed not only Carol's standard but even a higher one because anything less than 100 was not keeping the law of God. James Chapter 2, verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is accountable for all of it. And that's just a summary of many similar things being said in the Old Testament. If you know our Westminster Shorter Catechism at all, question and answer 82 has the statement, no mere man since the fall has been able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God. He daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. Thought alone. You know, if not necessarily in, in grievous violations of action, our thoughts are always betraying us. And Jesus said if you think adultery, you've committed adultery. Catechism 84, right after that, says this. It's a question first. What does every sin deserve? Every sin The answer is, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. That's a biblical statement, a biblical summary. Often we have people who say, well, this Reformed faith of yours or Calvinism or whatever it may be called is really a radical gospel, a hard-nosed gospel. And they will say, boy, you know, there don't seem to be too many soft edges or… Uh, you know, I want want something that's a little easier to handle than that. But what they usually are not thinking about or not taking seriously is to grasp the utter disaster that our sin represents. Sometimes we talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism. I'm not going in that direction tonight. But we say to people, if you really understand the first point that we call total depravity, there's no problem with the rest. The rest simply flow if you understand that you have total inability to please God. Now, when we say total depravity, there's always somebody that doesn't understand that. They say, oh, my goodness. I mean, do you mean there's no goodness in a human being at all? Well, I see goodness in my family members, my relatives, I hope myself once in a while. We say, of course, you do things that are morally good. But what we're saying is not that you are as bad as you could be, but rather that every action you do and even many of the best things that you might do are colored by impure motives, selfishness, deceit, or pride. If sin is like a red dye, for example, it's like saying, well, everything you do is at least pale pink, if not deep red magenta or burgundy. God's law is good. It's not evil. It comes from God. It's it's expressing his will for our blessing, and yet what it ends up doing is cursing us because of our inability, our rebellion. We break it. We all break it before breakfast every day. Luther wrote about this. I'm going to quote him a number of times tonight. Luther said to do works of the law does not mean simply living up to outward requirements, but rather it means to obey the inner spirit of the law with delight and to perfection. And Luther said, who can do this? Let him step forward and tell us. And he didn't expect any volunteers to jump out of the crowd and raise their hand. The Old Testament gives a witness to the curse of God's law, even though his law is good. If we could keep it, it would bless us completely, but we find we cannot because of our sin. All right, secondly then, we go more into the heart of this passage and hope that we've said and and what came before here in the previous week already said that you can't be saved by the law alone, and this has just reinforced it. But if we can't be saved by the law, then, then what is our answer? How are we to be saved? And so Paul begins to say, well, there is another alternative in verse 11. And interestingly, he quotes from an obscure but vitally important Old Testament passage, one of my favorite books. I love to preach the book of Habakkuk. You can do it very nicely in four sermons. You know, pastors know if you've got a summer series someplace and they want you for four weeks you could go and preach Habakkuk and you'd give people wonderful content. Habakkuk is obscure. His story is rather obscure, but Habakkuk 2.4 becomes a centerpiece verse plucked out of the Old Testament in the hands of Paul. And the, the verse says something like this, depending on the English translation, behold, his soul is puffed up within him. It is not upright, So it's talking about somebody that isn't righteous. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, Habakkuk was talking about particular people, the Babylonians, cruel warriors who were coming. God promised they were coming to conquer and punish Jerusalem. And these were guys who did not play softball. They brought with them metal hooks. When they took a captive, they might put a metal hook in the nose of a king or a prince and drag him down the road with a hook and a chain in the orifices of his head, his mouth, and his ears. Not exactly a nice way to treat your enemies. People like that are the ones who are puffed up in their souls and not upright. That's what Habakkuk was talking about. But he contrasted his own people and said the righteous live by their faith. Paul looked back to that sentence and brought it out. and as you know, it really becomes almost the theme statement of the Reformation, as Paul was working. In Galatians, in this same chapter I'm in tonight, he was working in Romans 1 and 2 and three, where the phrase occurs again, "The righteous shall live by faith." Romans 1:17 is one of the premier places. And it was in these passages with this theme, that the Apostle Paul was almost uh, electrified. Dr. Perrin this morning referred to him as being as if he was struck with a bolt of lightning, and that is not an exaggeration. We know the exact circumstances that were going on in that Reformation time. Luther was a monk that was struggling, struggling, struggling. He was one of the few who were really studying God's Word and studying it closely in the original languages, trying to understand it. Believe it or not, people weren't doing that. You would think at least the Bible scholars would do that, but not that many were. And Luther studied it, and he wanted to be right with God, and he sensed that he wasn't. And he had a particular event take place that he tells about when he visited Rome not long before the crucial time of his life. In Rome, he sort of took in the different tourist sites. I guess they had tourist sites even in the 1500s. And you went to a particular church, the Church of St. John Lateran. I believe you can still visit it in Rome today. In that church, there was a staircase which allegedly had been transported to Rome, the stone stairs transported from Jerusalem from the judgment hall of Pilate. And the reason, of course, was that Christians reasoned that These stairs in Pilate's judgment hall were stairs that Jesus must have climbed the last night of his life. So, of course, they had holy significance as a shrine for Christians. They set these stairs up there in St. John Lateran Church in Rome, and the pilgrims would come and climb the stairs, but they wouldn't even walk on the stairs. Oh, my, no, no, you wouldn't disgrace these stairs with your feet. You know, I should add editorially, we got new carpet in our house, and I'm now not allowed to wear shoes on that carpet. Uh, it's not order of the Pope. It's someone else, actually, that, that that is putting me out and saying, take off your shoes. But people were told, climb these stairs on your knees and pray. Have your beads as you climb and and say so many Hail Marys and so on as you go up the stairs, and people would kiss the stairs because the pope had said this was a blessed act, and you'd receive a blessing for doing it. Well, Luther did that, and, and he was partway up the stairs when he thought to himself, this is a complete and worthless fraud. And he I don't know whether he finished the act or not, or if he just left there, but he soon left Rome and came back to his biblical studies and his mind was all in a turmoil at the things that Rome was requiring of him to do, these different actions that were said, well, these things will make you holy. One of my favorite quotes from Luther is uh, he, he told how hard he tried to be a good monk. He was a monk of the Roman church, of the Augustinian order. And he said, if ever a man by monkery could please God, I was determined to be that man. But then suddenly he saw what a fraud these things are. This doesn't please God. This doesn't affect anything between me and God. And in his biblical studies just at that time, he was in Romans and he was in Galatians, and the phrase, the just shall live by faith, shot out of the word of God and lodged in the mind of Luther and would not let him go. Here's what he said. Before these words, the just shall live by faith, broke upon my mind, I think I actually hated God. I was angry with him because I could not resolve these turmoils. But when the Spirit revealed the truth to me, I understood, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And I felt like I was born again like a new man. Luther said, I entered the very gates of paradise. We would say he was born again by the Spirit of God. He was a new man. And that pivotal breakthrough came as a result of dealing with this verse like Galatians 3.11 and Romans 1.17 and the passages that talk about the work of faith as the pivotal idea for salvation as opposed to the foolish works. Notice how Galatians 3.12 inserts the kind of odd sentence there that says, the one who does the works of the law shall live by them. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought we were just being told we, we can't live by the law. Well, what Luther is referring to there is probably something like Leviticus 18 where the Lord said, if… Big if, if a person lives by these law principles, he shall live. They do give life if you can do them. But of course, apart from our fall, and if if it weren't for the fall is what I mean to say, we could perhaps. If we were in Adam's original state, we're being told you could live by what we call the covenant of works. You could please God. But once our race began to sin, and sin is inevitable, then this if clause is invalidated. You see, the law could save us if we could keep it, but we can't keep it. One person said the choice between law-keeping and salvation by grace through faith is like a man trying to step from a lakeside dock onto a boat. Have you ever done this? The boat hopefully is tied up maybe by a short rope, but usually not, you know, might be a few feet long. And as you step down from the dock, you've got one foot on the dock and one foot is down in the boat, you know what happens. The boat almost inevitably, the laws of physics are the boat begins to move away from the dock slightly. Now, if it's tied up real tight, you're okay. But if it's a five or six or eight foot rope, you are forced with an immediate decision. You know, what the right foot has or the left foot has done, the right foot had better follow. Or you're going to have one foot in the boat, one foot on the dock, with an increasing distance between, and you know where you're going to end up. Not in the boat and not on the dock. And one person said, This is like understanding the law and grace. God is saying, Get in the boat of grace. Step in with both feet because this is the way of salvation. And, of course, it was Luther who, not that other, you know, it seems sometimes like we glorify Luther too much as if the Reformation began and ended with him, and that isn't true. But he certainly was a clarion voice to sound this note forth, that justification by the grace of God through faith is the way to get into the boat of salvation. Our doing works will never do it. And amazingly, when he brought this forth, and Dr. Perrin described a little bit of his journey this morning, it was like a spear thrust into the heart of the church because the church was so encrusted with barnacles of do this work, buy this indulgence, act this way, you know, pray to this saint, kiss the bones of you know, St. Joachim or somebody for a blessing. And that was a construction of dead works that had to fall if people were going to see what true salvation and new birth in Christ was. Well, before I leave tonight, quickly, I need to make this third point to you as Galatians 3, 13, and 14 carries the doctrine one step further. Now, it's good to know we're saved not by works, but by grace, through faith. But something has to deal with this question of the curse because we've already been told in verse 10 that there's a curse if we can't do the law. Now, it'd be nice to say that God just waves a magic wand and says, curse, go away. I don't, I don't want you anymore. You're troublesome. You're, you're the past. We don't want to think about you. Well, wait a minute. This is the law of God, and it's been violated. The law of a holy, perfectly righteous, and just God has been violated. And so we need to understand what happens to God's curse as it is received by Christ for us. Because that's really the heart of this passage. And here, of course, we're peering into mysterious inner recesses of the works of the Godhead, mysterious things, amazing things, When we read a sentence that says something like, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, for cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. It just so happens that the Old Testament part of the law was don't ever hang a person's body up, Uh, you know, hang them by a noose or place them up on a cross or something like that, unless you are making the statement that this person is accursed. Now that was from Old Testament law. The Romans were not particularly students of Old Testament law. They may have known it vaguely, but they didn't know it well. And it was the Romans who borrowed from the Greeks, who borrowed from others before them, the ritual of death called crucifixion. Isn't it interesting that God, even in his wonderful plan by this awful thing called the cross, planned that that exact means of death which itself symbolized someone who had been rejected from society, was an outcast, a blasphemer, totally to be disassociated with, brought that means of death to intersect with the law that it might be fulfilled. And therefore, that as we would see Jesus Christ moving on to that cross in our place, we, we talk about the transaction. You accountants understand the transaction when we impute or count the righteousness of Christ for us, and we count our sin on his side of the ledger. We just switch sides. Is righteousness for us our sin for him? But wait, there, there's something that hasn't been done yet when we've done that. The curse still has to be satisfied. If it is not going to fall on the one who has earned it, where? will it fall? And it has to fall on Jesus upon whom our sins have been placed. And so we have this shocking language, Christ became a curse for us. Second Corinthians 521 says it a little bit differently, God made Jesus who had no sin to be or to become sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. A transfer will happen that for us is wonderful. But for Jesus, it doesn't just mean putting something on Him and and, and that having no effect. It means putting our sin on Him and the effect, the curse of our sin also falls on Him. So once again, I quote Luther. The Reformer said this, the whole emphasis… Here is upon what Christ did for us in our place. As for his own person being concerned, by no means would Jesus have been hanged upon a cross. But, he said, now we must speak of him not as the eternal Son of Almighty God, not as the perfect virgin born man. At the cross, he is a sinner. He is the sinner, the master sinner. Luther said, Jesus took on him the sins of Paul the persecutor, Peter who denied him, David the adulterer and murderer. He bore in his body all the sins of all men of all time, not in the sense that he committed them, but in the sense that he took them and took their penalty. The curse of God, something we cannot begin to comprehend. It seems today that the worst consequence or physical catastrophe we can think of in our current news is getting Ebola, right? This terrible disease. What if you were a nurse or a doctor working in Liberia as a volunteer and you gulped hard because they said you're going to be in the Ebola ward. Put on this protective gear. This is where you're going to work. But all of a sudden, you're, you're just ready to go in and do that your first day. And they say, oh, wait a minute. Someone has arrived here who deeply, seriously wants to and has volunteered to work with the worst Ebola patients. We're sending them in because they insist on going. You can go over here into the pediatrics ward relatively safe. This person wants to nurse the Ebola people. Think of what it would mean if you heard that person caught the disease and died. That is what happened for you in the case of Jesus. The transfer of the curse of God away from us is the most fortunate thing we could possibly imagine. It seems free. It seems wonderful. We are singing praises, praises, praises to God for sparing me, for forgiving me, for delivering me. But don't ever forget that for you to be delivered, he had to be cursed, excluded, condemned, shut out from the favor and the presence and the blessing and the Good fellowship of his heavenly Father, so that he would cry on that cross what we call the cry of desolation. My God, I don't know if it was shouted or it was whispered. My God, why have you forsaken me? That was the curse. J. Gresham Machen was a 20th century man, a reformer in his own right of the church. As a New Testament scholar, Machen wrote about Galatians. He has a little book of notes on Galatians that were published after his death. Here's what he said, The curse which Christ bore on the cross, listen to this, was not something wrongly laid on him as if imposed by some wicked human device. Since it was the curse of God's law, we must tremble as we say it rightly rested on Jesus, for only by it resting on his sinless substitution could justification be won for all who believe. So Paul concludes this text with good news, verse 14, so that as a result… In Christ, the blessing of Abraham may come to the Gentiles, so we may receive the promised Spirit. How? Law keeping? Through faith. One more quote from Luther He said, Faith beholds on the cross nothing but the precious jewel that is Christ Jesus. Jesus was the jewel took the curse. As a final grace note, let me remind you of the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 verse 3 says, in the final day when all is consummated, Christ has returned, the earth has been judged, God has his people at his side in final fellowship in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no curse. Not because God just decided to do away with it but because it was accepted and its consequences were paid out and paid out in full. Looking forward to that, Christian friends, how can we help all our lives but sing with wonder and with praise and with gratitude what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. That's the hymn we're going to sing in just a moment. Let me pray first. Father, our gratitude doesn't understand this. It can be told, it can be preached, it can be expounded. But we cannot imagine what that curse was. Not the curse of my sins only, but of all of us here and of all the world and all your redeemed people, loaded, loaded, like 10,000 landfills, loaded upon Jesus. How can we thank you for such a Savior as he who bore that curse? We do praise you. We do thank you. May we never cease to. Amen.